Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. You are listening to The Bird Calls on the Off the Glass, Nothing But Net, and Up and Under networks. For more on your Pelicans, go to iTunes, search The Bird Calls, and subscribe today. All right, what's up, Hells fans? Welcome to another episode of The Bird Calls. I'm your host and contributor to TheBirdRights.com, Preston Ellis. And today we are openly wondering just how long the Tim, the Tim Frazier experiment will last in New Orleans. I don't even know how to say his name. That's how new this experience is for all of us. Will the turnover problem ever stop? And, and do all these indicators uh, point to Alfred Payton as maybe the early season MVP candidate? These questions and so many more, just kidding about the last part for sure. Remember, if you guys like what you're hearing, do us a favor, share this episode on whatever social media platform you prefer. We deeply appreciate your help on that. Now, to introduce the rest of, I guess I can- Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, Talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. I'd say the Bird Rights team, because Grubb is now officially a writer for TheBirdRights.com. To help us with these topics, we have our old friend, David, who I mentioned. Also, Mm -hmm. uh, the guy who wouldn't take no comment for an answer at the Pelicans practice uh, this past Tuesday, the editor-in-chief to TheBirdRights.com, Mr. Ali Cosell. What's going on, dude? Nothing. I'm happy the Pels got a win because I get to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, it's probably no secret to everybody. We don't generally do this too often uh, when the Pelicans lose. One, because we don't like to be super negative. Uh, and also because our, our numbers kind of plummet whenever they're not doing well. <laughs> so, uh, in, in just the interest of being fully forthcoming with all of you. Next up, uh, a guy we've already introduced, our resident effort expert, and the man who is likely less pleased with last night's performance than the rest of us are, Mr. David Grubb of Preston City Sports. What's going on, man? And you keep making it seem like I'm this dour person that's <laughs> down on people all the time. And, and it, all it does is that remind me of just, and Ollie will say this, it's like Etwan Moore is staring at me right now. <laughs> he called me Mr. Negative a year ago. And Did he really? You know, basically, he didn't say, he, he was like, why are you always so negative? And it was after a game yeah. they lost by like 20. And I was like, I'm not trying to, like, what am I supposed to ask? What was I the question know? that prompted David, that response? David asked two negative questions, and literally everybody else was asking really good questions. And this this was amid a bad, like, kind of a turn. So it was just really weird that he responded like that. But I'll let David tell the rest of the story. But it was funny. Yeah, it's just, I mean, you know, you you get the normal thing where people are just like, hey, you guys, you know, battled in this quarter and things are going well. And I'm like, so in the third, when you (laughs) shot, (laughs) when you guys missed your first, there's some like one for nine, you know, some awful stat. I was like, so why didn't you do this? And he's just like, man, oh, why are you always asking negative questions? And I just, <laughs> and, then, and the whole. 
whole thing stopped. Like everybody looked at me for about a minute, and I just like I'm just trying to do my job here. I'm trying to get a full understanding of the of the events of the day, and you know I just get this reputation, and I don't think it's fair. Well, I'm I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that it's you that elicits that kind of response because we certainly know you can take it. But I've always wondered uh, at these magic events, whenever they ask questions, they could lose by sixty points. Not one negative question uh, comes comes across Steve Clifford or Frank Vogel's desk, for that matter. So it's always interesting to me how you've got this room full of twenty reporters and everybody's just throwing out these cookie cutter, cutter questions. But I guess when you get a response like that, that's what prompts those kind of questions. Uh, if you do it long enough, let's go ahead and get started. We've got a lot to talk about. Ali, the Pelicans flipped the script on the Wizards after allowing seven converted field goals or more to each of John Wall, Bradley Beal, Otto Porter, and Austin Rivers on Saturday night, along with an eye-popping 70 points in the paint, 57% shooting. But last night, they held the Wizards to 38 points in the paint, 43% shooting overall, and held last year's all-star backcourt of Wall and Beal to just two of 11 from the field. This with Tim Frazier in the lineup, who we were all terrified uh, was just going to get torched on the night. The Pelicans still did uh, give the ball away generously 20 times on the night, many of which can be attributed to Julius Randle. We'll talk about that a bit later. But they dominated on the boards by 34, I think, in the paint by 24, and in transition by 18. As I mentioned, Tim Frazier was the story. But what was the story of the night to you, Ali? Was it Tim Frazier? Was it Anthony Davis being the difference? Or was it just defense in general? It was absolutely Tim Frazier because it entirely set the tone for everything, Preston. Uh, you could see Drew Holiday was instantly in his comfort zone, where on the second offensive play of the game, he's uh, when the Pelicans got a rebound, Wizards started off a little cold, but the Pelicans were basically pushing on every every possession, and Drew Holiday was back to filling those uh, running lanes uh, along the sideline, and he caught a pass mid-stride, just past half court, went in for an easy layup. Then he had a couple more easy baskets, and boy, did that get him going. I remember him starting off five of six, and he was six of eight. He made a couple of threes early, something we haven't really seen from him with any regularity either. So he got off to a great start, and then it just kind of cascaded. You know, everybody took turns, and Julius Randle came and had a really big second quarter. Then after halftime, of course, it was the Anthony Davis show. But the Pelicans never hit any rough spots offensively, and I always feel like it's it's through their offense is how they play their defense. You know, it's supposed to be the other way around, we all heard. You know, your defense should dictate your offense, stuff like that. But it doesn't work like that with the Pelicans. It simply is they've got to score their healthy dose of amount of points, which they can, whether they're playing well or not. But the biggest key is limiting those turnovers. And specifically, it's those live ball turnovers. I know they had 20 of them last night, but you know what? They were hardly of any of that bad variety that would have allowed the Wizards to get out in transition and basically stuff it down our throats like Boston did just two nights before where they – I think it was 32 points off the turnovers, and I feel like that is what really destroyed the Pelicans' chances in that game. So they avoided that, and uh, like I said, it set the tone as to where then Wizards, you could see, especially with the starters, John Wall and Brad Beal got off to slow shooting starts. They were both one of four, and they never found their footing. I know they got off to a little bit of a hot start there in the third quarter, but really it was just a Kelly Oubre show, I felt like. And then Markeith Morris was just kind of cleaning up a bunch of other stuff. That's where you can live with those guys getting their points. And so the Pelicans basically had that double-digit lead throughout the game. But it was Tim Frazier, guys. He took the ball out of Drew's hands. He looked, you know, I think he overpassed a little bit. But he did end up with a great line. You know, nobody saw this coming. This guy had looked terrible as a reserve coming off the bench. Alvin Gentry wasn't playing him. But credit to the coaching staff. They had to try something. And it worked out, at least for a game. 
Uh, I'm going to circle back to turnovers because I believe the Wizards had something like 25 points off of turnovers, but we're going to keep it positive for David Grubb right now. I know one thing that we always talk about is boxing out. It's something that the Pelicans... Yes. So I just want to say, Preston, but the one thing you got to look at is the fast break points, and they only had like six or eight. So, you know, points off turnovers also includes fast break points, and when that number is down by your opponent, that means they're not really stuffing it down your throat. They just simply happen to convert off the turnovers. That means out of you know, Julius Randle's, however many offensive uh, charges he drew, how many passes we threw out of bounds, especially we had at least three touchdown passes, the home run variety that didn't connect, that were turnovers. But again, those points and that kind of momentum doesn't kill you. So I just want to make sure that, the, the, you know, the people at home understand who are listening. That really, I know it was a high number, but it's not the type that switches the momentum and can really kill you and take you out of a game. Yeah, for sure. Um what I was going to transition to next, um, obviously, excellent points, Ali. You've been watching this game a lot longer than I have. But w- one thing that I do want to look at in terms of the extra opportunities the Wizards were afforded by these turnovers, they were seemingly offset by the Pelicans' rebounding prowess on the night, an, ad- an advantage of 75 to 41, just overwhelming in general. And we've talked at length, David, about how the Pelicans don't necessarily box out with the regularity that we would prefer. Uh, they seemingly just... Uh, they're they're content to just jump over people. And we still saw a lot of that last night. But what did the Pelicans do differently between Saturday night and last night that gave them such an advantage? Well, I think that obviously the presence of Anthony Davis changes things for people um, defensively and on the glass, when, especially considering that Washington really doesn't have any size inside. And even, you know, Markeith Morris is playing out of position when he plays the four. He's really more suited as a, as a big three um, type of player but uh, you know that that's that's really what it was and, and also the Wizards just retreated to shooting jump shots uh, once they got behind they shot a lot of threes um, some were open but uh, you know they just didn't even really try to attack the glass um, against the Pelicans so you know New Orleans was able to take advantage of its size uh, you know none of the big uh, big guys got in foul trouble so that was always helpful so that you could keep them on the floor and uh, the pace was back at the Pelicans' desired uh, speed for most of the game. So once that there were misses by the Wizards, the Pelicans had people in, in place. And then on the offensive end, like you said, they were able to hit the offensive boards um, a lot better than they normally do. Uh, so that gave them you know, a, a great advantage on the glass to have Julius Randle and Anthony Davis cleaning up missed shots. Because the Pelicans did miss a good number of shots um, in the second half, but it's just they were able to just clean everything up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, dominating that side of the basketball. They they did win the advantage on Saturday night, I think by seven. It was something like 54 to 47. But tonight, such a definitive advantage. Uh, who is that back there? Ollie, is that yours? That's mine. That's Macy. Okay. Oh, nice, man. I love having them on the pod. Uh, I listen to Ralph Malbro, a lot of Saints forecasts, and it's nice having the presence of an animal on the podcast from time to time. Uh, Ali, let's let's go back to the turnovers. I know that the Pelicans slowed them down in, in terms of fast break and transition. But in terms of just limiting the turnovers, I think that was the general idea, not just pushing the pace by inserting Tim Frazier, but also limiting turnovers. And they did that to an extent, uh, keeping them away from Drew Holiday. But then you've got Julius Randle turning it over seven times in addition to charges, uh, seemingly becoming a black hole in the paint last night. We've seen that he can be uh, an apt distributor, but last night we seemingly didn't get it. And even with Tim Frazier in the lineup, the Pelicans still with, as we mentioned, 20 turbo turnovers is this a problem that's going to continue for the pelicans even if there is a difference between live ball and not live is is this something that the pelicans need to closely monitor going forward why does it continue happening 
Well, I think it's always going to be the Pelicans are always going to be in the upper echelon amount of turnovers simply because of the style they play. It's the same thing that has plagued the Warriors. And I don't want to say plagued. I guess it's a bad word considering how well and how successful their system's been. But they always end up in the top 10 in the league in turnovers. And that's where the, you know, the Pelicans are headed for. And that's just a byproduct, like I said, of the system. You're pushing the pace. You're taking extra chances. You know, and it's funny to me, every time uh, Alvin Gentry, especially after a loss, he talks about too many home run balls, yet that's what he kind of wants the guys to do, you know. He wants them to make that pass up the court, that 35-foot pass, uh, because that's really the only way you can beat a defense um, uh, across the court. Sorry, my dog's dog's climbing all over me. That's the only (laughs) way you can when it's not a true fast-break opportunity to still have the defense on their heels is by really through the pass, through the air. I mean, we don't have a Russell Westbrook. You don't have a guy that's got jet engines and can, you know, beat half of the defense down every time by just dribbling the ball up the course. So it's it's like a catch-22. So long story short, Preston, they're still going to continue, but you've got to just try and limit them. And I feel like if you take away Julius Randle being a little bit too much out of control and the Pelicans not trying to, you know, hit Anthony Davis on these over these half-court, over these half-50-foot passes that – Seemingly have no chance. Those are the ones I want them to eliminate. The ones up the sideline, like I said, the 35, 40 footers to either Drew Hall or each one more makes sense. When you're passing the AD, and we've got, first of all, very ungifted passers at that, but you're trying to throw it over three defenders, throw it and drop it in like Drew Brees does, does to any of his receivers. We can't do that. So if they could eliminate those, and like I said, be a little bit smarter, more patient offensively, especially guys like Julius Randle. Then they'll be fine. You can live with that 14, 15, 16 range. Grub, I want to talk more about Julius Randle and his seven turnovers. He's had more than five turnovers. I want to say four, either four or five times so far this season uh, through the initial first quarter. And I want to ask you, uh, taking Tim Frazier away from the second unit, Ian Clark only getting three minutes with the second unit, more minutes to Solomon Hill, up to 17, uh, his second game in a row getting over 10 minutes. Do you think these players being inserted into the second unit is directly contributing to Julius Randle's turnover-prone uh, past two contests? Yeah, I think so. Um, there is no second ball handler on the bench. So Randle has to handle the ball a lot more than he probably you would probably like him to. Um, you know, the, the best uh, utilization of him, I thought, from the high post would be on quick cuts. And when he brings in that second unit, Darius Miller's not a guy who cuts well. Um, you know, Ian Clark's just not been able to, to do anything. Uh, Fra- Frank Jackson doesn't have that natural in- understanding of how to cut yet off the ball. So I think that that part of his game has been diminished. And when he puts the ball on the floor right now, uh, teams are able to swarm because the Pelicans have not been hitting shots uh, with the, uh, around him. So, uh, you know, and, and then some of it is he's pressing. You, you see him trying to make things happen when you get to those stages where, uh, the Pelicans often slows down a bit. He's trying to force the action a little bit, making passes where people are too close together. I think he can cut them down, but he's always going to be turnover prone. But you don't, he cannot commit seven. Two, three, um, you, you live with because of the efficiency that he typically has offensively. But when he's getting seven and he's not getting assists as well, then uh, you would think that at some point there has to be some recognition on his part that he has to be more careful with the basketball. But just the team in general, there is an attitude of of laziness at times with the basketball. And they should be moving it ahead. They should be trying to get outlet passes. But we see these these turnovers in the half court where guys are 
flipping the ball to each other or they're trying to pass it uh, to people who are, you know, again, that, that spacing. When there's no spacing and they try to pass, the Pelicans are committing tons of turnovers in those situations. So, yeah, if it's off of movement, if it goes out of bounds because you were anticipating something, that's one thing. But the Pelicans are getting a lot of um, turnovers out of inactivity. And I think they could get really – I mean, last year they were at 13.9. So I think they could get back to that level. But they need, you know, a, another a frontline ball handler. And Randall has to get back into a position of where – he has pl- people playing off of him that are moving without the basketball. And right now, that second unit does not have a lot of people who do that. We're going to continue talking one about that. Uh, I just want to say one thing we got to um, acknowledge is the fact that Julius Randle's seven, that was an anomaly. I mean, his previous seven games before that, he only had three turnovers twice, uh, two turnovers twice, and then uh, total, I think, two others yeah two total in the other three games so it's not been a you know consistent problem with this guy I mean he's averaging 2.6 for the month and considering how much he touches the ball and how aggressive he is I think you have to live with that right like I said that you know that was the number I said between two and three you can live with I mean because that's just what you expect but when he gets to seven yeah that's a problem and I I, I just think that only occurs because the you know last night you saw a lot of those turnovers were spacing turnovers or him just trying to turn into defenders who are quicker than, you know, the Wizards had a small quick lineup out there. So their hands were in, and that that was the only way they could get back into the game. So guys just have to be aware of who's defending them and, and be able to read those double teams. That's something that we criticized Anthony Davis over the years, and he's done a much better job of that this year in recognizing those double teams. That's something that Randall has to develop too, and that comes from experience and then familiarity with your teammates. Yeah, well said. Ali, we're going to transition back to Tim Frazier. Uh, Of course, the Pelicans have the heat in Miami uh, tomorrow. That's when probably most people will be listening to this podcast tonight, as well as Charlotte on Sunday, Monday against the Clippers. It seems like they can get away with playing Tim Frazier, uh, at least in the short term, in the interim, until Alfred Payton is back somewhere probably closer to the end of this month. Just how confident are you in Tim Frazier in the starting lineup for the bulk of the month of December? Not really. I mean, you've got to base on what we've seen out of him uh, overall, and that's been largely everything's been inefficient or just not productive until last night. But one thing I did notice when I was looking at stats that I'm thinking about even turning into an article is we all remember when he first arrived in New Orleans. It was a lost season pretty much, and he came over from Portland, had an outstanding, outstanding showing in like the last 19 games or something like that. And so I remember fans complaining that we were winning too much you know, that he was actually uh, made the Pelicans offense palatable despite having the Jensa, Ashik, you know, he was surrounded by Jeff Ennis, uh, whoever else we tried on the wings, like, what was it, Sutherland, I think, James Sutherland. Hey, Ali, we're losing you, man. You're, you're muffled. I'm sorry. Is that better? Yeah, that's much better. Go for it. Okay. So anyways, yeah, he, he he arrived on the scene in New Orleans, had an outstanding show, and earns himself a new contract with the Pels, and he never really lived up to that hype. But one thing he always did well is he performed much better statistically as a starter, and this was the same thing last year with the Wizards. I looked, and in 11 games that John Wall was 11 or 12, he missed. He shot like over 48% from the field, over 40% from three. So, you know, maybe there's a thing to him where if he starts – Maybe that changes everything for him. So maybe the Pels, there's a chance that they could live with him, you know, playing for the next four or five weeks, playing big minutes. I wouldn't bet on it. Um, I'm not assuming it's going to happen, but I'm saying there's a chance. So 
I think that's what the Pelicans are going to do. They're going to go ba- game by game uh, basis. But the fact that he looks so good against the Washington Wizards, he's earned himself at least another week's worth of playing time. And you know the Pelicans, the coaching staff, they're going to throw him out there because they don't want to give Drew Holiday that uh, all that responsibility of moving him back to the one. Yeah, David, I want to continue on Tim Frazier, but I also want to address uh, Wesley Johnson, who played just nine minutes last night. Uh, Darius Miller getting 17 and Solomon Hill getting 14. Uh, Wesley Johnson has been an adequate player, I think, but the Pelicans have been getting out to those slow starts in the first quarter with him on the floor. Not not saying that you can directly attribute that to him, but the fact is that he's he's been in a situation that has been part of the problem. So what do you do now? Do you go on a on a case-by-case basis? You've got the Heat, you've got the Hornets, you've got the Clippers, you've got the Mavericks. Are, are you changing it up from game to game? Or are you just riding with Tim Frazier? And what do you make of the demotion that Wesley Johnson has seemingly had? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, playing around with the uh, lineups over the next couple of weeks, unless they do make a move to bring in another guard. Because you can't have Tim Frazier on the floor for 35, 36 minutes a night. That just that it's going to get exposed at some point. And you look at the caliber of guards that he's going to be facing um, on a night-to-night basis. I mean, you know, you're talking about the Kimball Walkers of the world. You know, the um, but you go to Dallas and you're talking Dennis Smith, Memphis with uh, Mike Conley, and I mean, it's just on and on. Kyrie Irving again, Russell Westbrook. You can't have you know Tim Frazier out there all those times. Maybe what he could do is get you going pace-wise get them into that zone and, and contribute that way. But I think as far as the wings, um, Wesley Johnson will have his time again because he wasn't the reason that the pace was slowing down. And he also um, is a better ball handler than, than uh, Solomon Hill. And I think he was doing a better job defensively as well. And he wasn't as he- hesitant to shoot his jump shot. I just think it was one of those things where Alvin was determined to shake up the lineup, see what he could do with that group. And once they got out to the lead, it, he was going to stick with the rotation because he didn't see any need to change it. But they're going to be facing a lot of different styles, a lot of different personnel over the next few weeks. And with all these guys, you're trying to ride them when they're hot. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't think that there's anything etched in stone between now and Alfred coming back. Um, but, yeah, Tim gets a week out of this. We And like Ollie said, we've seen him do well in spurts as a starter. But his disadvantages defensively, uh, really start to to hurt him at, uh, as time goes on. And then um, just his inability to shoot, if teams are able to sag off of him and Drew isn't shooting um, on any, any given night, then he could be a liability. So, yeah, it's a matchup-based um, situation, I think. But, yeah, Tim Tim will do a, a nice, a decent job, I think, in the short term. And him not turning the ball over is his biggest asset, um, And it, besides his ability to to continue to push tempo. Yeah, three turnovers last night uh, against 12 assists. That's still a four-to-one ratio, three-to-one being a lead. Ali, you posted some numbers. Uh, I'm going to read them from your Twitter earlier. You said they're the Pelicans' third strongest defensive effort of the season from an analytical standpoint, 98.1 defensive rating, in addition to some of the other uh, statistics you list there. Now, a big chunk of that with 36 minutes of playing time to Tim Frazier came with Frazier on the floor. I already mentioned Bradley Beal and John Wall struggling in the first half. Obviously, we were so fearful about him defensively. However, the Pelicans were so successful with him on the floor. What did you see from the Pelicans that allowed him to thrive on the defensive side of the court last night? A lot of effort. And I think he knew a lot of their plays because um, he cut off a lot of their driving lanes. Um, and, I, you know, there was a couple of times where John Wong Bradley Beal actually passed up opportunities to go at him. I thought on the very first two plays of the game, they did go right at him. I was sitting up up there in the media row with Kumar, and before the game started, I said, you know, we were trying to figure out who you put 
him on first, Beal or Wall. And I said, you got to do Beal because Wall is literally just going to treat him like a pylon out there. You got to at least take your chance that maybe Beal's going to have a rough night shooting. Um, so they did start him out on Beal, and, you know, he got off to a slow start. As to where I don't think Bradley Beal was honestly aggressive enough from out of the gates. Uh, they, he did. He picked up a foul, I think, in the very first minute, and so we were worried about that too. But, again, they went away from focusing on, you know, attacking him exclusively. So I think they got a little bit fortunate there. But I think David nailed the bigger point uh, why the defense was so successful. And it's because the offense, I think, just killed it. And that, this includes Tim. Tim got off to a three-for-four start, and he had hit two threes right off the bat, seemingly. I think it was both in the first quarter. Maybe it was the first and early part of the second. But I think that just basically always paves the way for this Pelicans team. When they got such good offensive starts, when they see a 10-, 15-point lead, their defense does get better. Suddenly these guys are trying to get back. They're trying to prevent all these uh, transition points. And, of course, they're cutting down lanes where they're helping one another. And that's the biggest key. You can't give up easy lanes. You can't give up wide-open threes. And for the most part, they did a pretty decent job on that end last night. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll, I'll mention the third quarter briefly uh, before we go ahead and move on to some of our questions. Uh, basically, with just Anthony Davis off the floor, the Pelicans really struggled to maintain the lead. He had 16 of his points in that stance. I'm trying to look to see how close they actually got it. Uh, obviously, Nikola Meritich had that three at the end of the third quarter that made it a 17-point advantage. But I think they got within 10 with Anthony Davis on the bench after getting out to a really uh, distant lead. David, are you concerned with the bench play? The The Pelican starters obviously were overwhelming last night. I think each of them were somewhere near 20 uh, over in the in the plus minus. What did you make of the bench? Are, how can we improve their production so that when the starters get these leads, the bench can maintain it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I hate to keep beating the same drum, but I think the biggest thing for the bench is that they don't have someone to lead them. You know, when you put, you know, the only guy who's been productive all season for them consistently is Julius Randle. And so the rest of them have not even had really a lot of decent double figure nights just to, to cross into 10, you know, just crossing that threshold from, from a bench player has been a hard thing to, to get, you know, I know Frank's done it uh, twice this season and, you know, a couple other people have, but, you know, they don't have a leader on that group, a guy who can create opportunities for them that are easy. They have to work so hard to score with the second unit, um, and it just, and when Drew was doing it, it was a burden really for him because he had no one to play off of. And then when you don't have guys who great who move the ball well without move with well without the basketball, and then guys who are streaky in their shooting, those lanes just get tighter and tighter. And so it, it just it's a it's it's a cycle of just them grinding uh, to a halt offensively. And then they don't that's that's not a group who's creating block shots. Julius isn't a block a guy who blocks a lot of shots. You're not creating steals with that second unit. So they don't get into transition that way. And they're not great uh, rebounders. So the things that they do well, they just don't have that one person, I think, on the bench who is a catalyst. And every bench unit needs a catalyst. Julius is really a focal point of a bench unit. But they don't have a guy who, who really sparks them as far as running the show and making sure everyone gets the shots that they need. Because you're on the bench for a reason. There's something that you're limited in doing. And so somebody has to take up that that missing piece, and they just don't have that right now. Yeah, twenty two points was the advantage. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Ali. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly acknowledge that Alvin Gentry has done a really good job. I feel like this year of staggering the rotations. When he first arrived here, we always used to scream at him for you know not splitting up Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis when they were really our only two decent players. That was the year when Tyree Gavins was kind of in and out of the lineups with his knee issues, and really they had nobody else to turn to. Um, 
But this year, I feel like, you know, we see at the six-minute mark, either Nico or Drew usually go sit down. AD usually now is playing through the first full quarter. That's where at the start of the second, you've got at least one or maybe sometimes two starters out there. So it's not a full bench because they know, David. They We've both seen mm-hmm. it and talked about it. They used to try and go with just five-man complete bench units around Randall, and boy, it just fell flat on its face. So credit to Alvin Gentry. He is breaking it up, but, it, you know, it's still not a long-term solution because that means starters, they're playing more minutes. They're not playing as many minutes together. And really, you always want your best lineups playing together as much as possible. So it is a problem. I just wanted to mention that they are trying to alleviate mm-hmm. by staggering the rotation some. All right, this will be the last one, and then we'll go ahead and move on to the future and to questions. Uh, David, I just want to – or actually, I just posed a question to David. I'll throw it back to Ali. In terms of uh, help at the rim, obviously with Anthony Davis in the in the, in the post, uh, the Pelicans are one of the NBA's best in terms of having a guy who can facilitate, who can move from side to side, help defend, uh, block shots. But with Julius Randle and Nikola Miritich down there, while these guys are competent defenders in terms of body, they're athletic, they can – they can race out to they can get out on the perimeter uh, when they're forced on switches. But when it comes to being in the paint, in the restricted area, these guys seemingly don't get their hands up. They don't stop the ball. Opposing players get into the paint, get to the basket pretty much seemingly at will. And you've seen Alvin Gentry kind of go to check Diallo in that respect. And we've seen uh, some some good and not so good performances from him mainly last night as the not so good performance. Do the Pelicans need help with rim defense on the second unit? Absolutely. I mean, when Anthony Davis isn't out there, you start sweating bullets. I mean, Randall can come up with the occasional block. Same thing with Miritich. He'll, he'll make a surprising block because of his inability to get up in the air. But outside of some freak plays, you're right. No opponent is afraid to challenge those guys at the rim, uh, take it in the paint, you name it. As for AD, you know, he basically creates this five-foot barrier between him and the opponents where they don't want to come anywhere a step inside of that five feet. So, he sets a real nice perimeter around that rim as to where opponents – I mean, Kelly Oubre learned the hard way last night, right? He was the only guy, and I can't remember, trying to challenge AD, and he lost badly twice. So the Pelicans do need another guy. Preston, I would feel a lot better if Diallo would be that guy or maybe uh, Julio Or even though he's not known for being defensive presence. But somebody has to be able to do that because you're right. The Pelicans' defense just falls apart seemingly, especially when uh, opponents get some kind of dribble penetration. Uh, at the rim and that's a problem you know the best teams somehow don't suffer these problems so that is a problem yes all right david let's go ahead and start previewing the next uh week slate of games or a week and a half the the heat are flummoxing at the at the moment seven and 13 the hornets have been pretty good i think they're somewhere around six or seventh in the east right now at 11 and 10 i want to say the clippers at least were uh first in the west for a moment not sure if they're still there the mavericks are still I want to say somewhere around where the Pelicans are, 10 and 11 or 11 and 10. How are you feeling about this next week and a half of games? I don't think they're all very uh, competitive games. I don't you know, see any of them where they're just walkaways for the Pelicans. Uh, Miami should be – Miami always plays hard at home, and, and the Pelicans have struggled on the road. So that's a game the Pelicans absolutely should win. Um, I expect them to win that game, but, I, again, it won't be easy. Kimball Walker doesn't make anything easy in Charlotte. They have length, um, and, uh, and and I think that will give the Pelicans some issues. Uh, Pelicans are going to have to make sure they maintain tempo against a team like Charlotte. Clippers, we saw them the first time. Their wings were definitely a problem. If they can get some better play out of their guards this time, that game will be a lot closer than it was the first two t- first time these teams played. And the same, you know, this will be the first look at Luka Doncic, who has proven already that he is uh, as advanced as a 19-year-old could possibly be 
um, short of LeBron James at that age, just his, his court sense, his ability to shoot the basketball, his ability to spark that team. And then you have, you know, the athleticism of a Dennis Smith Jr. in the open floor. Um, they have Harrison Barnes playing solid basketball. For them to be 11 and 10 is, is, is a good place, um, I think, farther along than other folks, including myself, would have had them at this point of the season. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very um, competitive week. This month is a very competitive month for the Pelicans. And, uh, you know, with those road games in particular, they have to start picking up some of those games in the Eastern Conference, especially because those are the ones that you count on during the going into the season as being ones that are a little bit easier to get because of how difficult it is in the West to pick up road wins. So it becomes vitally important that when you go on the road in the East to win those games. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see how the Pelicans approach those. Ali, just to continue on that, uh, December was a month we pointed out during the offseason as a place where the Pelicans could make a run. And it seemingly lines up with the, the best possible timing of Alfred Payton being out of the lineup because there's a lot of Eastern Conference teams on this slate. And the middle of January is when the Pelicans run through the gamut of all the Western Conference contenders. How important is it for the Pelicans to win this next four weeks? Oh, it's vitally important. And I think it's it's actually harder than what we gave credit for earlier, simply because of how many games they're playing uh, within, like, say, you know, five-week span. I commented when uh, I wrote my last article on Drew Holiday about, what was it, they played six times in nine games, and then after that they had 10 in the next 17. So they're still in a very tough stretch despite the caliber of the opponent. Uh, so I, I think it kind of sucks, actually, that Alfred Payton is missing this stretch, you know, where he can – not only add another, you know, um, reputable and dependable body for Alvin Gentry, but also the fact that he's just going to soak up some of these minutes because these guys are playing a ton. Um, for instance, the yes. Pelicans didn't even practice today because uh, Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis have been playing so many minutes, and I know that they're already monitoring their minutes. You know, they're trying to keep them from doing as much, say, in shoot-arounds, say, in practice, because it's already becoming something to worry about, and we're, we haven't gotten to December yet. So, Preston, to answer your question, I think, of course, it's important. David made a great point. Eastern Conference, you got to win those games. And, boy, they just flubbed their last opportunity on that trip out to the Northeast. So they've got to take advantage. Um, and I don't know exactly where they're going to pick up these wins, too, because I think the Clippers, the Mavericks, and the Memphis Grizzlies, I mean, honestly, if they're not playing their best ball, that could be three losses in a row next week. Yeah, for sure. And with that being said, we'll transition into one of our questions. Uh, the Pelicans have this lineup of Anthony Davis, Nikola Meritich, and Julius Randle that's been successful in spurts. This question is from Tejeda. He says the three big lineup have only played 32 minutes together. The ratings for that three-man lineup are really good. What do you think is the reason why they've hardly played together? Will we see that three big lineup at all for extended stretches? And those three games that Ali just mentioned could be a, a good time to experiment with that. David, why do you think we haven't seen more of this lineup? I think it's because of the the scores that you know they've been behind so early. Um, I think the the big lineup is really like the lineup of death when you talk about what the Warriors do. It's one of those ones where you just you use it to destroy people, and the Pelicans have not had a lot of opportunities as of late to try to destroy anybody. You know they've been in these hard fought games, and so if you put that group out there for a really long time, I think the issue becomes defensively your flexibility. For a long stretch, you can do it in a five minute burst. But if you have to play an entire quarter with that trio out there, again, what people are doing, which we've seen them do on occasion, is pull Anthony out farther defensively and then attack the basket. And then the Pelicans are giving up those points in the paint. And so um, 
you know, I think that's probably been a, a you know, circumstantial issue for them right now is if the games are tighter and closer, you're, you're more likely to go to that lineup. But when they're trailing and trying to get back into it, I don't feel like they that Alvin maybe feels as comfortable having three bigs out there to give them the kind of defensive flexibility he wants in order to create turnovers and get themselves back into ball games. But Ali, we, we've talked at nauseum about the Pelicans uh, needing to make a decision this offseason about which of these two to prioritize between Nikola Meritic and Julius Randle. Don't you have to experiment a bit more with the three of them on the court just, just to see if you're going to invest maybe $160 million between those two players this uh, offseason? Absolutely. And I think they're probably going to do that uh, once they're afforded that opportunity. Both they don't have any more uh, substantial injuries. And I think we have to assume Dell Demps is going to make a move or two for the trade deadline to strengthen this rotation. Because right now, I think they expected better performances from some guys like Solomon Hill, Darius mm-hmm. Miller, Ian Clark. I mean, you can expect one guy to come out of the gate slowly, but when you've got an entire bench not named Randall coming out sluggish, downright unplayable most nights, I mean, you, you can't do the things you want to do. Because I know this team actually wants to see Solo more at the four. So that would give an opportunity for uh, to have these bigs play together. Um, they were probably hoping for Julio Okafor to pick up some things too. And I've heard that he's not quite picking up things offensively in certain um, areas where Gentry feels comfortable giving him in. So I think it's a combination of factors that have actually led to that. But you're right, Preston, they have to. They have to look at it because the Pelicans have, you know, I keep harping it, but they have so much talent in that first five or six. When you've got uh, five 15-point scores, that's something. That's saying a lot when you consider AD is nearly at 30. What Julius Randle can do in his limited minutes, what Drew Holiday is, I mean, that's outstanding. And it's a shame they don't have any, anybody behind them. But we'll see it, Preston. I think we'll definitely see it once closer to the trade deadline and definitely after it. All right. To continue on what he was saying, uh, just in terms of how shallow the bench has been, that'll lead us to our next two questions. Obviously, the Pelicans are are hoping to promote from within with, as Ali mentioned, Jaleel Okafor, Frank Jackson, among others. Uh, maybe Wes Johnson can continue to play better. Darius Miller can get a bit more confident. I know we've been waiting for that for about 90 to 100 games at this point. Uh, this is from You Already Know, as well as Hot Pelican Takes. You Already Know says, should the Pelicans prioritize prioritize depth over all-star in any trade they decide to do hot pelican take says which position should the pelicans be prior uh man why can't i speak tonight prioritizing in the in the trade market a point guard or a wing david you first um to me point guard is is the absolute necessity um as far as a target but the market will dictate that uh, more than anything and i think in the trade when people talk about should you get depth or 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 star I'm not sure how many stars are going to be available. I think that before the season, we all thought that around Christmas, things would have already started to shake free and you'd see teams that were not going to be in contention. Well, in the West, 14 out of 15 teams have to feel like they have a shot at the eighth seed at this point. And then in the East, you still probably have 10 to 12 teams that are in the hunt. And the teams that aren't are not teams that um, a lot of them are not profiles, uh, player profiles that would help the Pelicans. So it's going to probably be a later trade market than we thought. Um, And then the Pelicans will probably also be forced into a position where they have to give up maybe a little bit more than they want to because of the competition for certain players uh, as as the season goes on. So, I mean, if if a great deal for an all-star came along, and I know people tend to to hone in, that usually means they're talking about John Wall or Bradley Beal. Um, If a great deal came along, and the money matches up, then that's, yeah, that's something to talk about. But it, with any deal, it's always, what are you giving up? 
and what position does it put you in for the future? And then, of course, we're still waiting on the Anthony Davis question. So all those things are, are part of this. But as of today, I'd say the Pelicans will be trying to make a move. But I can't imagine a giant move being made until right before the break. Yeah, the only guy I can see in the top, I don't know, 30 payroll uh, that might come up in trade conversations, I would think would probably be Gordon Hayward. And I know, Ollie, this is something that we're going to address in our roundtable uh, coming out this week. I just sent you my answers, I think. Uh, but is there any big big money guy on the market that, that you think the Pelicans will definitively target? Mm, I want to say no. I think they're happy with their group of six, and I think they want to see it through. Um, it, but then again, they know better. They know what are the odds of resigning Meritage. Same with Randall and how much it's going to cost. If they don't think they can resign both of them, if there's really no chance, then you've almost got to flip one for some kind of asset you think you can keep around this core in Anthony Davis. So that's something only they can answer. But as of right now, I don't expect them to, simply because I feel like we've seen, like like I said, this team, what, what, what every goal of every GM is, is to literally put a weapon out there that no team can beat, right? And I feel like the Pelicans have had that when they've been fully healthy. I mean, we saw them last year, what they were able to do when they had Rondo instead of Alfred, and we had no Julius Randle. I mean, they looked really, 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 really good. And so we saw the start of this year. So, like, you don't want to tinker with that too much. I mean, I know people keep talking about this wing, and that's true. But you know what? Who cares if each one more is kind of, you know, kind of given some size or whatnot, as long as he's still producing, say, 15 to 18 points. You know, it's kind of uh, limiting the damage and, and mitigating the damage. And, of course, you've got Anthony Davis. You've got our three bigs. Well, I think you you absolutely try and hang on to because that is our weapon. That is what can completely steamroll teams for 48 minutes. You can have two of those guys out on the floor constantly. Uh, and that's huge in, say, a playoff game where you've got to play your best players. And so that's a huge advantage for the Pels. And that's why I just feel like that we've seen enough that they've shown enough glimpses as to where I don't think management really wants to tinker too much. Um, but again, like I said, it does come down to money, it does come down to contracts, and that's stuff we're not privy to. So maybe that will, in other words, initiate a, a deal. So we'll see. And I know that if Kevin was here, he would want to keep his eye closely on Trevor Reza, TJ Warren, possibly Josh Jackson of the Suns. Uh, but obviously some of these players There's will shake. Top 30 guys. You asked me about top 30. <laughs> yep, oh, you yeah, you said all-stars. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, fair point. I'm just looking at guys making uh, somewhere comparable to Solomon Hill's salary. But in terms of guys making 17 million or more, like Ali said, there's there's not a lot out there that the Pelicans would be interested in because uh, other than uh, unfurling Solomon Hill and Wesley Johnson with a couple of first round picks, you would have to send one of Etwan Moore, Nikola Meritich, Julius Randle in a deal like that. Uh, let's get one more question, then let's get you guys out of here and off to the Saints game. This is from Positively Pelicans, David. With the team constructed the way that it is currently, what is our ceiling and what is our floor? Well, I think the floor depends on the injuries. Uh, I think the worst case scenario would be this is a team that misses the playoffs by you know, two to three games if, if they just don't get healthy, if they just can't overcome the, those issues and, and, and find some depth. I think that would be the floor. But the ceiling is, again, it depends. If you're if they're totally healthy um, in this and you're in all things being equal, then I think that they're a t- capable of being a top five team in the West. Um, so that, that's where I would put them. But realistically, honestly, just over the course of a season, if you said today, what do I think they are? I think that they're they're a five through eight. All right. 
Uh, Ali, we're going to wrap it up there, but I am going to come circle back to you in a second. Guys, that's all the time we have. Uh, we're going to go ahead and watch the Saints game now. We're probably about 25 minutes into it. Remember, though, if you guys like what you're hearing, please share your affection for us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, whichever one you prefer. Uh, and and shout out your questions to me at Preston Ellis, and we'll make sure to hit you up on the next show. Ali, I know we've got some roundtable discussions coming out this week. What else do we have coming at thebirdrights.com? Like I said, I want to concentrate on either Tim Frazier and looking at his um, uh, impact of being actually a starter. Maybe he can actually, with you know, he can stay in the lineup for five weeks and the Falcons can make do with him only and not make a deal. Or I just want to look at basically just keep answering the question, hammering the point that really it's a point guard. As David has been saying ad nauseum, same thing with myself and including others on our team, you yourself, Preston. That's the position the Falcons need to focus on. So maybe just do some more analysis on looking at our first week, just in general, how this team operates when Drew holidays off the ball. All right, David, of course, of Crescent City Sports, as well as thebirdrights.com. David, what do you got cooking up? Well, I think absolutely. I'm still going to be trying to be looking at, you know, this, this road trip and seeing in the context of, you know, defensively, how do they start these games coming up um, on this little mini trip? And, and does the, is there carryover from the Washington game? Um, that's the main thing. And then also we have to, I think we still have to continue to look at Anthony Davis and look for that consistency. I think he shot a little bit better against Washington, but again, a lot of shots outside of the paint. Um, so does Tim Frazier give Anthony more opportunity to rim? Uh, that was a big, I think that's been a big part of him not performing at, at the level that we're accustomed to. So hopefully Tim can get him uh, back into the basket. All right, you guys, thanks so much for listening. Of course, you can follow Ollie at Ali Cosell, David at DM Grub, at The Bird Rights, at Crescent City Sports. Make sure you guys check out all of their latest work there. I'm Preston Ellis. Follow me at Preston Ellis. Of course, shout out to Kevin Barrios, who's at work, at Kevin B for Balance. But we just want to take this moment again to thank you for joining us. Got a lot of games in the slate. Hopefully, the Pelicans can go on a mini run here and get back into the conversation as one of the four or five best teams in the Western Conference. For now, thank you guys for listening. Let's go, pals. Thank you for listening to The Bird Calls on the Off the Glass, Nothing But Net, and Up and Under podcast networks. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes, retweet, share with your friends, and most importantly, subscribe today. We see the news that teen vaping's on the rise, but teens see something else. Internet videos that talk up fun flavors and downplay the dangers of nicotine. How can parents talk so kids will listen? Use facts. 1. Nicotine can rewire teens' brains. 2. It can make kids more anxious. 3. Changes to the brain can be permanent. So even when it tastes like candy, nicotine is brain poison. Go to flavorshookkids.org for more. Geico presents uh, yet another voicemail from your roommate. Hi! So, about the kitchen. Turns out, when there's a grease fire, you're not supposed to throw water on it. <laughs> Who would have known, right? Anyways, the fire department is here, and it's totally cool. Give me a call back when you get a chance. The Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if danger is your roommate's middle name. Visit geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.